Welcome, my fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, former member of the State Board of Education and co-creator of Patriot Week. This special standalone episode interrupts our detailed review of the Declaration of Independence. In light of the overarching dominance of the COVID-19 virus and the massive reactions and changes it has wrought, when we return, we will examine how the Constitution and the response of our federal, state, and local governments interact. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. By the time you listen to this podcast, any statistics about the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic will be obsolete. With every passing day comes, at least when this episode is recorded, thousands of newly identified infected persons and deaths. In light of the highly contagious and difficult to track coronavirus, our nation and most of the world has been turned upside down. Medical facilities are becoming overwhelmed. A vibrant, growing economy has come to a screeching halt. Millions of Americans have lost their jobs. Most of the nation is in lockdown in their homes, only able to leave for very limited essential purposes. We have witnessed unprecedented laws, regulations, declarations, and decrees from our federal, state, county, and local governments. Emergency declarations and shelter-at-home orders have cleared out most of the traffic and ended a tremendous amount of entertainment, social, and business activity. Courts have nearly closed, and police are ignoring misdemeanors. The federal government has dusted off little-known authority to order private manufacturers to make desperately needed medical equipment. The federal government has expanded unemployment insurance, established new loan programs for small businesses, and established other money injections for big business. Who knows, by the time you listen to this podcast, more federal and state programs and regulations may be on the books. This special episode of Patriot Lessons is not going to even attempt to keep up with this amazingly fluid situation. Instead, we will slow down and explore an underlying fundamental issue. Can they, they being the government, really do all that? To explore this question, we have to remember that in the United States, we have a federal system. That is, we have a federal government, And putting aside Washington, D.C. and several territories, we have 50 states. Unlike other forms of government across the globe, the United States Constitution provides for a federal government. Most countries have a national government, that is, a government that has all the powers of government. Then that national government either directs local governments to do what it wants, or it might delegate some decisions to the local governments. Here, it is the opposite. The federal government only has the powers expressly given to it by the Constitution. That is called the doctrine of enumerated powers. 
In other words, the federal government only has the powers that are listed out in the Constitution. The idea was to vest in the federal government authority that was necessary to create a cohesive nation for national security, foreign affairs, to create a national market, and to address nationwide issues. For example, the powers to conduct foreign policy, declare war, regulate interstate commerce, and appoint ambassadors are vested solely in the federal government. We will be spending a great deal of time on this topic of enumerated powers when we review the Constitution in later episodes. All remaining governmental power rests with the states. That is clear from the structure and the text of the Constitution and was made quite explicit in the Tenth Amendment, which provides, quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited it by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people, unquote. This is what we call federalism. We don't list out what powers the states have because if a government can do it, the states can do it, unless the Constitution specifically says it is assigned to the federal government or prohibits the states from doing it. Therefore, the states have authority to govern the people as they want, except, again, what has been exclusively given to the federal government or prohibited. The idea was that to protect freedom, it was best to divide government between the federal government and the states. In addition, federalism also furthers the first principle of the social compact by allowing those closest to the people to govern on matters of local and state concern. It also has the side benefit of allowing experimentation in the states, as well as the very important benefit of tailoring local governance to local situations. Again, we will address this keystone of the Constitution in greater detail in later episodes of this podcast. And both federal and state governments have the authority to exercise parallel powers within their own spheres of power. For example, both the federal and state governments have the power to tax. Now, you definitely know this. Most taxes you pay, for example, property taxes or sale taxes and many state income taxes, go to state or local governments. Other taxes, like the federal income tax, Social Security and Medicare taxes, go to the federal government. States can have, and the federal government definitely has, estate and gift taxes. They both can levy excise taxes, which are taxes on specific goods, like gasoline and cigarettes. Both federal and state governments also spend money. The federal government spends enormous amounts of money on the military and national defense, foreign affairs, health care, and social welfare programs like Social Security, loans for students, and food assistance. Collectively, states focus their spending on roads, law enforcement, including jails and prisons, health and hospitals, including mental health, K-12 schools, public transit, and public universities. But the federal government spends money on those too. Local governments, which are the creations of the states, spend money on roads, law enforcement, sewage, housing, fire protection, and parks and recreation. All form of governments pass criminal laws and civil regulations. The founders thought that the state governments would pass the most legislation. States possess what is called the police power. The police power is a broad authority of the states to pass legislation to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the people of the states. Justice Samuel Chase of the United States Supreme Court and a signer of the Declaration of Independence observed in the famous 1798 case of Calder versus Bull that states, quote, may enjoin, permit, forbid, and punish. They may declare new crimes and establish rules of conduct for all their citizens. In future cases, they may command what is right and prohibit what is wrong, unquote. Think about it for a second. We know this. 
It sounds like morality through legislation, but isn't it the whole point of legislation? To create rules of conduct, to command what is right and prohibit what is wrong? Justice Thomas Cooley of the Michigan Supreme Court was the prominent constitutional authority in his time. He explained the police power as follows in his masterwork, Constitutional Limitations. Quote, the police power of a state, in a comprehensive sense, embraces its system of internal regulation, by which it is sought not only to preserve the public order and to prevent offenses against the state, but also to establish for the intercourse of citizen with citizen those rules of good manners and good neighborhood which are calculated to prevent a conflict of rights and to ensure to each the uninterrupted enjoyment of his own, so far as reasonably consistent with a like enjoyment of rights by others." Unquote. Now that's a mouthful, but the point is the police power is really what undergirds civilized society. The state set the ground rules for how we are to live. Enforcement of contracts, criminal law, tort law, building codes, education, health and safety, roads. It's a moral code. All falls within the police power. The federal government, on the other hand, has no such police power. Remember, it only possesses those enumerated powers listed in the Constitution. Now, there are some limits to the police power. First, the United States Constitution might specifically prohibit states from doing something, like printing money or engaging in foreign policy. And a state cannot violate federal constitutional rights, for example, due process or equal protection of the laws. Second, the states themselves may have constitutions or laws that prevent the states from doing something. For example, a state constitution might specifically prohibit the state from taking private property to use it for private purposes. For example, condemning a beachfront and then giving it to a private company to run a casino. A state constitution or law might prohibit stem cell research. State constitutions often require balanced budgets and prohibit certain kinds of taxes or levels of taxation. Sometimes states will have constitutional rights that are broader than federal provisions. For example, states could interpret their constitutional guarantees of the free exercise of religion to be broader than the U.S. Supreme Court's interpretation of the First Amendment. So although the police power is vast, it is not unlimited. In sum, the federal constitution vests some power exclusively in the federal government, some powers exclusively with the state governments, and allows both forms of government to have similar powers. Which brings us to the coronavirus. Who is doing what, and how is it, or is it not, in accordance with the constitutional structures? Let's start with state authority. In connection with the police power, despite its limitations, state authority is quite broad. More than a century ago, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a tremendously important justice, best known today for his service in the Civil War and also espousing strong protection for the freedom of speech, wrote, quote, It may be said, in a general way, that the police power extends to all the great public needs. It may be both in aid of what is sanctioned by usage or held by the prevailing morality or strong and preponderant opinion to be greatly and immediately necessary to the public welfare, unquote. Very broad. Likewise, in 1897, Justice Henry Billings Brown of Detroit, writing for the Supreme Court, declared, quote, The police power is not subject to any definite limitations, but is coextensive with the necessities of the case and the safeguard of the public interest, unquote. And again, returning to Justice Cooley, when explaining the police power, 
quoted the prominent English jurist Jeremy Betham as having these purposes. Quote, The police power is in a general system a precaution, either for the prevention of crimes or of calamities. Its business may be distributed into eight distinct branches. 1. Police power for the prevention of offenses. 2. Police power for the prevention of calamities. 3. Police power for the prevention of endemic diseases. 4. Police power of charity. 5. Police power of interior communications. 6. Police power of public amusements. 7. Police power for recent intelligence. 8. Police power for registration. Unquote. As Cooley and Bentham point out, there are many reasons and methods by which the police power can be used by the states. In fact, American understanding is even broader than those eight points listed out by Bentham. The United States Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall explained in a pivotal 1824 decision, Gibbons versus Ogden, that the police power involves, quote, the great immense mass of legislation, which embraces everything within the territory of a state, is not surrendered to the general government, all which can be most advantageously exercised by the states themselves, unquote. So can the states pass health and safety laws? Can they take action to address a contagious disease? Absolutely. Justice Cooley and Bentham specifically mentioned it as the number three reason that the state can act and use its police power. Likewise, among the immense mass of legislation reserved to the states, Chief Justice Marshall reflected are, quote, inspection laws, quarantine laws, health laws of every description, as well as laws for regulating the internal commerce of a state. No direct power over these objects is granted to Congress, and consequently, they remain subject to state legislation, unquote. This understanding has stood the test of time. For example, in the 1954 decision of Berman versus Parker, the United States Supreme Court explained, quote, public safety, public health, morality, peace and quiet, law and order. These are some of the more conspicuous examples of the traditional application of the police power to municipal affairs. Yet they merely illustrate the scope of the power and do not delimit it. Unquote. Wow, the police power is awesome and is vested in the states. So it appears that not only is the police power deep and wide, it can grow and expand with the times. Some constitutional scholars and jurists observe that the Constitution should be interpreted as it was originally intended or understood at the time of its ratification. Other scholars and jurists assert that the court should interpret the Constitution flexibly as times change. Yet other scholars and judges argue that the Constitution is a living document that grows or evolves with the times and that it is a living, breathing document. And we will address these competing perspectives in the later episodes, but the argument is moot here because the police power is already built in to be flexible and change with the times. In connection with COVID-19, the states have drawn on their police powers to address the pandemic. As of the time of the drafting of this podcast, all but four states had some form of stay-at-home or shelter-at-home orders for the residents. 37 of those were statewide prohibitions. In other words, the governors have issued executive orders or similar directives requiring most people to stay at home, except for a few essential purposes like buying food, undergoing outside exercise, walking pets, working in critical industries, and similar reasons. Such orders also require infected or potentially infected people to be quarantined, that is, away from others. Orders have shut down most business activities, except those deemed essential. What we call social distancing, 
a term, frankly, I didn't know a couple of weeks ago, uh, but I bet everyone listening to this podcast is now familiar with, requires residents to stay several feet away from each other when not at home. Schools have been shut down. Long-distance learning and other alternative education procedures have been encouraged and implemented. With a few exceptions, travel within or leaving the state is banned. Disease reporting requirements have been enacted. Churches and other places of worship have been shuttered. Universities have been ordered closed. Weddings, conventions, funerals, parties, business conferences, movie theaters, sporting events, all toast. Changes in election procedures and the postponement or cancellation of elections have been enacted. One governor has vowed to seize and redistribute ventilators. In addition, some states prohibit testing for people who do not have symptoms of the virus. Shelter-at-home orders are enforced, depending on the jurisdiction, with verbal warnings, civil fines, revocation or suspension of business licenses, criminal fines, and incarceration. For example, Wisconsin's emergency order makes a violation punishable by up to 30 days imprisonment and or a $250 fine. Indiana makes it a Class B misdemeanor, which can be punished with up to 180 days in jail and or a $1,000 fine. Other states enhance penalties for criminal conduct that occurs during a state of emergency. For example, according to the Center for American Progress, a defendant arrested for allegedly attempting to steal a car battery, which normally would be a misdemeanor with a punishment of up to 30 days in jail and or a $1,000 fine, is now facing a felony with possible imprisonment of up to 10 years. Fulton County in Georgia, the home of Atlanta, punishes violators with up to a $1,000 fine and 12 months in jail. Violations of Michigan's shelter-in-place executive order originally carried up to a $500 fine and 90 days in jail. In addition to the criminal penalty, an emergency order issued by the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services Director Robert Gordon established a $1,000 civil penalty, plus referral to applicable licensing agencies for violations of Michigan's shelter-at-home order. The civil penalty is the only statewide order that I'm aware of that was issued by an administrative agency, not by a governor or the legislature. Now that I've said that, I'll probably be proven wrong, but at this point it appears, from my less than exhaustive research, to be an outlier. Don't get me wrong, administrative agencies do this kind of thing all the time, but usually through a rulemaking process, which includes notice, a public hearing, and other procedural safeguards before the rule comes into place. Suffice it to say that the states are very, very busy addressing the pandemic and in many different ways. Under the federal constitution, this is all perfectly constitutional and falls squarely within the police powers of the state, with a large caveat. That is, there could be state actions that violate federally guaranteed constitutional rights. Consider, for example, if an order closed down only churches, temples, and other places of worship, or closed synagogues, but not Christian churches. Those kinds of targeting of religious institutions or particular religious places of worship would almost certainly violate the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. It would also likely violate the similar guarantee protected in the offending state's constitution. But at this point, thankfully, I am unaware of any such targeting. However, a lawsuit was recently filed by a pro-life activist who was protesting an abortion clinic. Now, he was on an adjoining sidewalk and complying with social distancing requirements. However, he was given a citation for violating a stay-at-home order because protesting is not a permitted activity. The lawsuit points out that he could have been on the same spot for exercise, walking the dog, on the way to shop for groceries, and not violated the order. The lawsuit argues that his free speech rights trump the stay-at-home order under these circumstances. 
Another hot spot of controversy is arising over abortions, not just protesting over them, but obtaining them. Some states are treating abortion as an elective medical procedure and have shut them down. Abortion rights advocates claim this violates the federal right to abortion first recognized in Roe v. Wade. These and similar cases will be fascinating to watch. Another way these actions could be unconstitutional is to violate state constitutional guarantees. Presumably, each governor or legislative action is authorized by the applicable state constitution. Likewise, each action needs to comply with state law. Whether each action in each state is constitutional under the state constitutions and in conformity with state law is an examination I defer to the respective state experts. It's far beyond my poor powers of research. Another class of actions the states have undertaken is spending money. According to the National Conference of State Legislatures, the NCSL, states have purchased medical supplies and equipment, expanded unemployment benefits, expanded Medicaid, supported research regarding modern disease outbreaks, granted money to local governments, expanded homelessness assistance, granted schools money for cleaning, supported business relief, created wage replacement, and found plenty of other ways to spend money. Again, this all clearly falls within the police powers of the states and should be perfectly constitutional under the federal constitution. Whether they comply with state constitutions and law is again a question for the home team experts. So the states have the constitutional authority to enact health regulations and spend money. But there's yet another class of actions by the states and that are proposed laws and enacted laws or orders involving non-health related regulations that are deemed to be necessary in light of the virus. For example, according to the NCSL, states have enacted a proposed stays of mortgage foreclosure, suspended eviction of renters, prohibited utility shutoffs, extended filing deadlines for courts, adjourned jury trials, waived requirements for unemployment, suspended certain taxes, waived minimum hours and days of school instruction, waived business and license fees, established paid sick time, extended statutory court and other timelines and statute limitations, incentivized drug manufacturing, expanded insurance coverage, waived high school graduation requirements and K-12 standardized testing, expanded alternative methods of voting, prevented price gouging, required schools to provide meals for poor students, implemented tax credits and tax holidays, postponed renewal of driver's license, required all votes in the presidential primary to be by absentee ballot, required state universities to refund housing credits and boarding charges, change petition requirements, allow governments to hold meetings electronically, change when state legislatures are meeting, and expanded gubernatorial emergency powers. Here's a weird one. Florida's legislature declared the Florida State University Seminoles basketball team the 2020 NCAA basketball champions by default, based on the cancellation of March Madness. I don't think Florida really could do that since it's up to the NCAA. There is also a set of legislative resolutions urging Congress, the President, Governors, citizens, the medical community, and other industries, and the federal government to undertake certain actions. Other resolutions also honor certain people like medical personnel. Now, as a constitutional matter, this all clearly falls within the police power of the states. Now, what about the federal side? Well, as noted before, the U.S. Constitution does not grant the federal government any kind of police power. All powers that the federal government has must be expressly enumerated. Most of the enumerated powers of Congress are set forth in Article 1, Section 8, and we will definitely dive into that provision in later episodes. 
That provision provides, among other things, that Congress has the power to, quote, to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts, and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, unquote. The provision also provides that Congress can, quote, regulate commerce among the several states, unquote. Finally, the provision provides that Congress has the authority to, quote, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, unquote. The huge expansion of federal authority over the last 90 or so years has come as a result of these three provisions. There has been serious, deep, and prolonged debates about the meaning of the General Welfare Clause, the Spending Clause, the Interstate Commerce Clause, and the Necessary and Proper Clause. Suffice it to say, that's going to be great fodder for future episodes. With regard to the spending power, at this day and age, basically most constitutional scholars would agree that the Supreme Court has given the federal government the green light to spend money on whatever it wants, as long as it doesn't violate some other provision of the Constitution. For example, if it gives money to the states and it puts too many conditions on that money that affects things unrelated to the authorization of that money, that might be unconstitutional. Today, the Commerce Clause has basically been interpreted to mean that the federal government can regulate anything that has any kind of economic effect, which, well, is just about everything. Congress just has to be smart about how they invoke that authority. If Congress simply states it's acting pursuant to the commerce power, but fails to make findings of how that is true, the law could be struck down. But we need not go down that rabbit hole for now. You might be thinking, well, Judge Warren, if the states have police powers and the federal government doesn't, then doesn't the Tenth Amendment mean that the federal government has no authority to act? And that is an excellent argument. However, in connection with communicable diseases, way back in 1824, in Gibbons v. Ogden, the United States Supreme Court case I quoted earlier, Chief Justice Marshall recognized that the express powers provided to the federal government by the Constitution could overlap with that what appeared to be the exclusive province of the states, and vice versa. He explained, quote, All experience shows that the same measures, or measures scarcely distinguishable from each other, may flow from distinct powers. But this does not prove that the powers themselves are identical, although the means used in their execution may sometimes approach each other so nearly as to be confounded. There are other situations in which they are sufficiently distinct to establish their individuality." Unquote. Now, what he's trying to get at here is that both the federal and state governments can take actions that look like each other, and depending on the circumstances, that is perfectly constitutional. It is not always a zero-sum game. Marshall continued, quote, In our complex system, presenting the rare and difficult scheme of one general government whose action extends over the whole, but which possesses only certain enumerated powers, and of numerous state governments which retain and exercise all powers not delegated to the Union, contests respecting power must arise. Were it even otherwise, the measures taken by the respective governments to execute their acknowledged powers would often be of the same description, and might sometimes interfere. This, however, does not prove that one is exercising or has a right to exercise the powers of the other. Unquote. In other words, there is tension built into the Constitution between the states and the federal government. Sometimes the state and federal governments will clash. It can get messy, really messy. 
As we will explore in future episodes, this tension is a key ingredient to keeping us free. And when the states and federal government clash, there isn't always a clear answer. Sometimes each can act the way that they want to, sometimes not. Sometimes a free republic creates a mess, and there it is. Now, we learned earlier that addressing health and safety was at the core of the state's police power. So you might think that there is no place for the federal government here. But in fact, Marshall and Gibbons versus Ogden observed that Congress had passed laws to address public health in connection with contagious diseases and that it is constitutional. Quote, The acts of Congress passed in 1796 and 1799, empowering and directing the officers of the federal government to conform to and assist in the execution of the quarantine and health laws of a state proceed, it is said, upon the idea that these laws are constitutional. It is undoubtedly true that they do proceed upon that idea, and the constitutionality of such laws has never, so far as we informed, been denied, unquote. Marshall elaborated a bit, explaining that basically the federal government had the authority to assist the states in addressing health and quarantine laws. In light of this interpretation of the Constitution, there really isn't much controversy about whether the federal government can act during an epidemic. The question now is, how has it done so? On January 31st of this year, Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex M. Azar II executed a document entitled, quote, Determination that a Public Health Emergency Exists, unquote. The determination is commonly referred to as a Declaration of a Public Health Emergency, It's very short and doesn't say much other than such a determination has been made in connection with COVID-19. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, the declaration allows state and local health departments more flexibility to request that the Department of Health and Human Services reassign personnel to respond to the virus. The department also states, quote, the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention is working closely with state health departments on disease surveillance contact tracing, and providing interim guidance for clinicians on identifying and treating coronavirus infections. HHS is working with the Department of State to assist in bringing home Americans who have been living in affected areas of mainland China. HHS divisions are also collaborating with industry to identify and move forward with development of potential diagnostics, vaccines, and therapeutics to detect, prevent, and treat 2019 NCOVD infections. I'm not really sure why the Declaration and Department are downplaying what the Declaration itself actually authorizes. Section 319 of the Public Service Act, which is cited in the Declaration, gives the Secretary of Health and Human Services some very broad authority. In fact, the Declaration or Determination of a Health Crisis isn't even necessary for the Department of Health and Human Services to jump into action. Section 311 of the Public Services Act authorizes the department to work with states and localities to prevent and control communicable diseases and implement plans to use department resources to address emergencies. For example, the National Disaster Medical System can help states and municipalities by sending up to 5,000 medical professionals. They have teams for disaster medical assistance, trauma and critical care, disaster mortuary operational response, victim information centers, and national veterinary response. They can also help train and conduct exercises for medical personnel, move patients, reimburse expenses, and have pediatric disaster care centers of excellence. Once a declaration of emergency is made, the director can make grants, 
make contracts for goods and services, investigate diseases, as well as waive a bunch of regulations that might slow down reaction to the crisis. The Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services can also deploy the Strategic National Stockpile, which has medical supplies and equipment to supplement state and local supplies during public health emergencies. In addition to all this authority, Congress has enacted the National Emergencies Act and the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act. On March 13, 2020, President Trump invoked both laws by announcing a national emergency. The National Emergencies Act authorizes the president to declare a national emergency. National emergencies are terminated when the president says so or when there is enacted into law a joint resolution terminating the emergency. If an emergency is not yet otherwise ended, Congress is to review every six months whether it should declare the end of the emergency. A declaration of emergency automatically terminates a year after it's announced unless the president issues a notice that it is continuing. During the emergency, the president has to report to Congress what he or she is doing and give a report of all expenditures attributable to the emergency and explain what authority he or she has used to take those actions and then spend the money. President George W. Bush declared such an emergency on September 14, 2001, following the terrorist attacks of 9-11. President Trump invoked this act in connection with the COVID-19 on March 13, 2020. This declaration was very limited. It permitted the Secretary of Health and Human Services to waive or modify certain requirements of Medicare, Medicaid, and the state children's health insurance programs and Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. In addition to this authority, the disaster relief provisions of the Public Health and Welfare Code, otherwise known as the Stafford Act, creates disaster preparedness and mitigation assistance administration and assistance programs. The act defines emergency as, quote, any occasion or instance for which, in the determination of the president, federal assistance is needed to supplement state and local efforts and capabilities to save lives and to protect property and public health and safety or to lessen or avert the threat of a catastrophe in any part of the United States, unquote. This authority is very broad. It permits an emergency to be declared when states and local governments need help to save lives, protect property, public health and safety. This does not require the emergency be an act of God. Riots, uprisings, and epidemics, terrorism, all fall within this provision. The act also addresses major disasters. Those are acts of God, like earthquakes and floods and volcanic eruptions, which almost certainly would not apply to an epidemic. The text of the act is less than precise. Although it defines the terms emergency and major disaster, Several of its provisions just refer to disaster, not emergencies and not major disasters. For purposes of this podcast, I'm assuming that in the end, emergencies like epidemics are basically treated the same as major disasters of the act of God variety. In this review, I will be using the terms emergency, disaster, and major disaster interchangeably. The governor of any applicable state must request the declaration of an emergency. The request must detail everything the state has done to address the emergency and show that the state alone cannot address it. It is up to the president to decide whether to declare the emergency. When an emergency is declared, the president is to form emergency support teams of federal personnel to be deployed to the affected area. 
the President can direct any federal agency to assist with the disaster, coordinate relief efforts, provide technical and advisory assistance, assist in distributing medicine, food, and other emergency assistance, and provide accelerated federal assistance and support where necessary to save lives, prevent human suffering, or mitigate severe damage. The response can include repair, restoration and replacement of damaged facilities, removal of debris, federal assistance to individuals and households, unemployment assistance, emergency grants to low-income migrant and seasonal farm workers, food assistance, relocation assistance, legal services, crisis counseling assistance and training, community disaster loans, emergency communications, emergency public transportation, fire management assistance, and timber sale contracts. On March 13, 2020, President Trump issued a letter directed to the Secretaries of Homeland Security, Department of Treasury, and the Department of Health and Human Services, along with the Administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, determining that COVID-19 pandemic is, quote, of sufficient severity and magnitude to warrant an emergency determination, unquote, under the Stafford Act. Many states have asked for such a declaration of emergency, and the president has issued such declarations liberally. There is yet another law, the Defense Protection Act of 1950. As amended, President Trump has invoked it as well. The act was initially adopted during the Korean War. The act has quite a few pronouncements about the policy of the United States, including involving industry and energy production. The president may provide incentives to industry to develop, maintain, and modernize domestic sources for critical components, technology, materials, and industrial resources essential to national security. It also provides that the president can offer loan guarantees to private institutions, to finance producers and suppliers, and provide loans to businesses. Section 303 of the Act provides the president with the authority to purchase, quote, any industrial resource or critical technology item for government use or resale, unquote. Encourage research and development, develop production capabilities, increase use of emerging technologies, among other actions. It prohibits purchases of American contractors by entities controlled by foreign governments and requires reports on foreign industrial espionage. Section 101A of the Defense Production Act provides that the president, when he deems necessary and appropriate to promote the national defense, is authorized to require performance of contracts, take priority over any other contract, and he or she can, quote, for the purpose of assuring such priority, to require acceptance and performance of such contracts or orders in preference to other contracts or orders by any person he finds to be capable of their performance, and to allocate materials, services, and facilities in such manner, upon such conditions, and to such extent as he shall deem necessary or appropriate to promote the national defense, unquote. That's an amazing power. Section 101B provides that the president can order private businesses to take such contracts, quote, unless the president finds one, that such material is a scarce and critical material essential to the national defense, and two, that the requirements of the national defense for such material cannot otherwise be met, without creating a significant dislocation of the normal distribution of such material in the civilian market to such a degree as to create appreciable hardship, unquote. Okay, in English, what this means is that these provisions together give the president almost unfettered authority to order private businesses to engage in production of what he determines 
the national defense needs. Just a couple quick comments. This clearly addresses, quote, national defense, unquote. A similar act was used by Presidents Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Truman in World War II. That was the Second War Powers Act of 1942. That act vested in the president the authority to seize and order supplies and property and direct entire industries to produce munitions, tanks, planes, ships, uniforms, knives, you name it. They did it. Before that was the Department Reorganization Act, also known as the Overman Act, which was enacted during World War I. President Wilson created a War Industries Board, which directed raw materials, pricing, and production of war-related goods. So basically, we've had about a century of these powers being on the books for war purposes. In connection with COVID-19, Trump ordered the private huge supply company 3M to produce N95 respiratory face masks. In his memorandum on Order Under Defense Production Act regarding 3M Company, issued April 2nd, 2020, the president addressed the memorandum to the Secretary of Homeland Security and the administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency and directed them to, quote, use any and all authority available under the act to acquire from any appropriate subsidiary or affiliate of 3M Company the number of N95 respirators that the administration determines to be appropriate, unquote. Trump relied upon his constitutional authority as president, as well as the Defense Production Act of 1950. On March 27, 2020, Trump also ordered General Motors to produce ventilators using a parallel memorandum. The memorandum, in pertinent part, states, quote, The Secretary should use any and all authority available under the Act to require General Motors Company to accept, perform, and prioritize contracts or orders for the number of ventilators that the Secretary determines to be appropriate, unquote. Although no one has challenged the President's invocation of the Act yet, there could be a viable question on whether reacting to a health crisis, such as this pandemic, constitutes a national defense crisis. Good faith arguments could be made on both sides. It is very clear that the Act is written with the idea of war, insurrection, or some other military calamity, and so one could forcibly argue that the President has gone too far. On the other hand, the military and civilian populations are threatened by a pandemic, which clearly degrades military preparedness and could tempt an enemy to attack us. A third position would be that the president could invoke the act in connection with protecting military and support personnel, for example, order respirators and ventilators to help military victims of the disease, but not for the general civil population. Now, this is all likely moot because both GM and 3M have agreed to comply. In fact, both have complained that they were already doing what the president was ordering. The broader question is whether the Constitution grants the Congress the authority to reorganize the economy in times of national defense. In Youngstown Sheet and Company versus Sawyer, the Supreme Court in 1952 ruled that the president, Truman, could not seize private property, their steel mills, to fight the Korean War. The steel mills were in the middle of a labor dispute, and Truman was concerned that a prolonged standoff would threaten the production of steel, and therefore the war effort. However, Truman did not invoke the Defense Production Act of 1950, and instead relied on his own inherent constitutional authority. Truman specifically complained that the Defense Production Act was too cumbersome to use. The Supreme Court ruled that cumbersome or not, the president could not act without legislation. In addition, the Supreme Court majority, written by Justice Hugo Black, basically held that the Congress has such authority, quote, the power of Congress to adopt such public policies as those proclaimed by the order is beyond question. 
It can authorize the taking of private property for public use. It can make laws regulating the relationships between employers and employees, prescribing rules designed to settle labor disputes, and fixing wages and working conditions in certain fields of our economy. The Constitution does not subject this lawmaking power of Congress to presidential or military supervision or control. Unquote. In short, the president cannot do this on his own, but Congress and the president can. The president has also issued international travel restrictions pursuant to several presidential proclamations. He has relied upon his own constitutional authority, as well as sections 212F and 215A of the Immigration and Nationality Act, and 1182F and 1185A, and section 301 of Title III of the United States Code. At some point, we will likely spend an entire episode on immigration and international travel. But the bottom line here is that the travel restrictions are quite constitutional. So we have covered the states and the president. What about Congress? While we've already reviewed many of the acts they passed before the crisis, what about those after the epidemic started? Congress has passed three major laws in connection with the COVID-19 pandemic. For anyone that watches Congress, this is quite amazing in this day of deep partisan rancor. The first law was enacted on March 4th, 2020, and it is H.R. 6074, the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2020. $8.3 billion was authorized. Expenditures included money to prevent, prepare, and respond to the virus, which went to the Food and Drug Administration, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the Public Health and Social Services Emergency Fund, the State Department, and global health programs. Other funds went to the Small Business Administration for a disasters loan program. The second law was enacted on March 18, 2020. It is H.R. 6201, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. It allocates money to the Food and Nutrition Service, Defense Health Program, Indian Health Service, Age and Disability Services Program, and the Veterans Health Administration Medical Services and Medical Care Community. It provided waivers to allow students to receive free and reduced lunch while schools are closed and established an emergency family and medical leave expansion program, provided additional unemployment insurance funds, established Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act, eliminated deductibles on coronavirus coverage and health insurance and Medicare, and established tax credits for paid sick and paid family and medical leave. But these two acts were peanuts compared to the third act. H.R. 748, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act that was enacted on March 27, 2020. This is a $2 trillion package. This mammoth bill is over 800 pages long and has 13 parts called titles. The titles include the Keeping American Workers Paid and Employed Act, Assistance for American Workers, Families and Businesses Act, Supporting America's Healthcare System in the Fight Against the Coronavirus Act, Economic Stabilization and Assistance to Severely Distressed Sectors of the United States Economy, and Coronavirus Relief Funds. Programs established by the Act include forgivable loans and grants to small businesses and nonprofits, entrepreneurial development, the expansion of state trade, bankruptcy reforms, pandemic unemployment insurance, emergency unemployment relief for governmental entities and nonprofit organizations, waivers of penalties for early withdrawal of retirement funds from 401k accounts, 
increased charitable contributions, employee retention credits for employers subject to closure due to COVID-19, various business tax code revisions, incentives to find treatments for the COVID-19 virus, authority to procure essential medical devices, modifications of insurance with regard to COVID-19 testing, promotion of telehealth and rural medical services, medical training and education, nursing workforce development, temporary relief for federal student loan borrowers, expansion of family and medical leave provisions, and direct payment of funds to adults subject to certain income limits. The bottom line is that these three new federal enactments are basically expansions of activities and programs that have already been undertaken by Congress. If unemployment insurance, health care insurance regulation, taxes, health care research, and federal loan guarantees are constitutional already, the new acts do not change the playing field. Sorry to sound like a broken record, but future episodes will address the tremendous expansion of federal law into these spheres, and we will leave those constitutional discussions for later. Otherwise, this episode will contriple in size and swallow up much of the series. So, some key takeaways from this episode. The Constitution divides power between the federal government and the states. The states have general police powers, and those powers are broad and wide, subject only to limitation by express provisions in the federal constitution and state constitutions. The federal government has limited enumerated powers. Addressing an epidemic is in the heart of state constitutional authority. States have taken the lead by issuing shelter at home orders and undertaking a host of dramatic legal reforms. Congress can also act in the face of an epidemic and has delegated to the president the ability to declare and fight a public health emergency through the Department of Health and Human Resources, as well as directly through declaring an emergency under the Stafford Act. Congress has enacted the Defense Production Act and the president has invoked it, but there is some question about whether that is appropriate to address an epidemic. Congress also has the authority to expand and change and reform other prior acts in its constitutional realm. Fellow patriots, thank you for your attention to this special episode. Please join us next time when we return to our regularly scheduled programming and explore the phrase, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, unquote. Until then, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, Patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. Patriot Week was started by my then 10-year-old daughter when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration for America. You can follow us on Twitter at Patriot Week, on Facebook, on our Patriot Week Foundation page, and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on one of those social media platforms I mentioned or connect with me directly at M as in Michael Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N, at PatriotWeek.org. Also consider my book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americassurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you 
and God bless America.